This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm Coronacast's producer Will Ockenden. It's Friday, the 12th of February. And rounding out our beautiful lineup of very smart people joining us on Coronacast this week in Norman's absence is epidemiologist from La Trobe University, Hassan Valley. Thank you for joining us, Hassan. Oh, it's lovely to be here. So Melbourne is still kind of grappling with a bit of a hotel quarantine outbreak. Hassan, we've seen this holiday in cluster continue to grow. Some close contacts have tested positive to COVID. There's been exposure sites, you know, added added to this list, this rapidly growing list. And while this is happening, people in Melbourne are obviously watching it really closely, but so are people in other states because we've seen that when an outbreak occurs in recent months, people want to act really quickly. States want to act really quickly to keep the spread from spreading as much as possible. And so perhaps borders are going to be thrown up again or there might be increased restrictions in Melbourne. And so can we talk about what it takes for somewhere to be declared a hotspot? What goes into that decision? Yeah, look, it's a really interesting question and clearly it's something that um, we haven't clarified throughout the course of the pandemic in the last 12 months. It's been very confusing and difficult for people to work out when we should declare a hotspot. I think if we go back to first principles, the key issue here when we declare a hotspot is that we're making the call that there's an increased risk of someone being infected in a particular area and that if they travel to another area, they're going to put that area at risk. So the interesting thing for me is over the last 12 months, it's been a real um, indicator for people's um understanding or willingness to tolerate uncertainty and their their willingness to tolerate risk. And we've seen how that has been different between the states. And we've also seen that evolve even within states where a state would have pulled the trigger on a particular intervention six months ago, but now they're being a little bit more nuanced in response to these, these situations. So we're constantly learning And it's going to be an interesting thing to see what happens this time around, just over 12 months into this pandemic in Australia. It seems like the cases are coming through now in sort of drips and drabs. Yesterday, the Chief Medical Officer, Professor Paul Kelly, said that he was absolutely confident that the infection was a single event going back to the Holiday Inn Hotel. Now, close contacts, though, are starting to test positive. Is that something you were expecting to happen or were you hoping that it could just be contained to the immediate staff and residents of the Holiday Inn? Yeah, look, I mean, I think you always hope that it can be contained at that level, but always you always have to have the expectation that it's going to spread beyond that initial chain of transmission. And that is why we work so hard to identify contacts and quarantine them and we identify contacts of contacts. So we're we're working really hard to put a ring fence around the virus and to halt any chains of transmission. So in some ways, cases that have been identified today have, you know, it's, it's positive that they were predicted and that they were in quarantine. And so really it's going to be the next few days that are crucial for us to be able to identify whether um, we're ahead of the virus or we have to play a little bit more catch up. So this week we also saw the release of the report from the World Health Organisation fact-finding mission to China to try to figure out where the virus 
originated. And we've had a question from the audience basically along the lines of, what's the point of going back and investigating the origins of the virus more than a full year after it emerged? Yeah, look, I mean, I I have to admit that I am, I wouldn't say sceptical, but I'm very cautious in my interpretation of the the usefulness of of this. And, um, you know, just as a scientist and epidemiologist, I, I struggle to try and understand what we can gain this far out from, you know, the events in Wuhan a year ago. But at the same time, I understand the need to make an attempt to do this. And I even understand, uh, if you can believe it or not, as a scientist, I understand the politics and the optics around this. But, you know, I've tried to put myself in the situation of the investigators and try and think through what I would do if I was plunked, you know, plucked into Wuhan now, what would I do that would shed light on what happened that long ago? And I've I've really struggled, to be honest. I mean, you know, I don't know what they could have done in their 10-day visit that tells us any more than we would have already known. But I have to be really careful and say that that is no reflection on the scientists and their intentions and the intentions of the WHO. It's just very difficult this far out to come up with any definitive conclusions that are, that are going to be meaningful. But that doesn't discount the fact that I think more work needs to be done and it is going to be a useful exercise to work out the origins of the virus. But we do actually need to deal with the situation that we have right now. We can't just throw our hands in the air and just go, oh, well, it's too late to find out now because we need to. We need those learnings to inform the inevitable future pandemics that we're going to see. And I know that with Hendra virus, for instance, it took years before we discovered the origins of that, uh, that that originated in bats. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a, um, you know, this may be just step one. Um, you know, there's a lot of data out there that people are circulating that suggests that maybe the virus was around a good three or four months before we were aware of it in Wuhan. So I think there's going to be a lot of work done as with everything to do with, you know, COVID-19. I think the next 10 to 20 years um, are going to be full of work that is going to be done on this. (laughs) That short, that short amount of time. (laughs) Now, before we let you go, yesterday, Paul Kelly, again, the chief medical officer, said the AstraZeneca vaccine will, quote, be very shortly receiving Therapeutic Goods Administration approval. In fact, while it hasn't been approved at the time of recording this, it may well have been approved by the time you're listening to it. But putting that aside, what would the approval of the AstraZeneca vaccine mean in Australia? Yeah, so I think the important thing to say is that there's been a really thorough process to go through to get to this point. And there aren't too many surprises, you know, in terms of this approval coming through about now. That is what was predicted and that was what was taken into account in terms of the vaccine rollout program that has been designed. So, you know, everyone can be reassured, firstly and most importantly, that the vaccine is safe and that's the main concern for a lot of people. And, of course, we have a lot of evidence now in terms of its effectiveness And so we're well on the way now to starting to deliver the vaccine. And I always say every vaccine that we deliver is a step closer that we are to getting back to normal. So, um, yeah, I urge everyone to get out there and, and get the vaccine. 
The AstraZeneca vaccine specifically has copped a bit of flack for not having as high of a reported efficacy rate as some of the other vaccines that we're seeing rolling out. And we heard uh, a week or so ago that it doesn't seem to be very effective against the strain that is circulating widely in South Africa. But you're saying in the Australian context, it's still really useful and something that people should get behind. Yeah, look, I mean, I think there's a bit of confusion around that in terms of the endpoints that are used to estimate vaccine efficacy and that that's efficacy against any symptoms and so that's a pretty high threshold but if you look at efficacy in terms of preventing severe disease hospitalization and deaths then um, the evidence is that the vaccine's almost a hundred percent effective so we want to save lives we want people to get the vaccine so that they don't die um, and don't get very ill and have all the consequences associated with that so um, I think sometimes we get seduced by these numbers that are thrown around without fully understanding them. So it's a really important message. This vaccine will save lives. And just one last audience question for you today, Hassan. Someone in WA has asked, why didn't SARS-1 blow out to the proportion of the current SARS-CoV-2? Yeah, look, it's a really fantastic question. And although there's a lot of similarities between these two viruses, there was one massive difference in the way the disease played out. And that was the first SARS, um, you were not infectious until after you developed symptoms. And not only that, you didn't reach your peak infectivity until a good week or so after you developed symptoms. So can you imagine if we had that in the current situation, how much easier it would be to control COVID-19? So that that allowed us to always be ahead of the game and bring the pandemic under control in, I think, around eight months, you know, with nowhere near the amount of uh, devastation that we're seeing now. Well, thank you very much for, as Tegan says, being our last wonderful guest of the week. Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, I don't know if this is the right opportunity, but I think, um, you know, I'd really like to acknowledge the great work you guys have done throughout the pandemic, not just to educate people, but also to influence them with your really clear communication. I think you guys have made a huge difference. So well done. Oh, thanks, Hassan. Uh, Hassan Valley is an epidemiologist at La Trobe University and Dr Norman Swan will be back with us on Monday. But that's all we've got time for for today. And we'll see you next week. See you then.